0: Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in this community. And I started this podcast with several intentions in mind to support the people of our community. And I read the intentions at the beginning of every podcast episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO kundalini yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, To let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they're doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, To honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. On today's guest, um, it is me, Guru Nishan and I decided to um, I've been thinking about being a a guest on my own podcast here because I have a 3HO story of course because I was born and raised here and um, I was thinking about having somebody interview me but then um, gosh I got several emails saying "When are you gonna tell your story and one grace graceful woman here uh, reached out and just said I want you to look in the camera and I want you to tell your story so I said okay so here I am Um, I'm gonna read a little bit about my bio so you have a sense of the story I'm gonna tell and then I will go into it so Guru Nishan Karkalsa was born and raised in the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in 1977 in the Phoenix Arizona area navigating a challenging early childhood with lots of chaotic changes including her mother leaving the Dharma in 1978 custody battles and despicable communication between fighting parents among other things She grew up resilient, feisty, and full of positivity to give to the world that she thought was the power of her light, rather than recognizing these symptoms as deeply rooted trauma patterns. At age 19, she lived and worked in the Johannesburg, South Africa, 3HO ashram, and later in the Herndon, Virginia ashram as well, with interesting stories that we'll talk about today, After experiencing burnout in her decade-long sales, wellness, business career, she took kundalini yoga teacher training with Krishnakar in Los Angeles in 2009 to get back to her center and heal. She had zero interest at this point at being a kundalini yoga teacher or making money doing this. After the final collapse and eerily familiar demise of her business, Enterprise, in 2012, she began to teach kundalini yoga in Chicago as a way to move through her grief, confusion, fear, and vitriol that was surfacing. Slowly and many, many years later, she began to recognize trauma patterns of emotional withholding, emotional bypassing, whitewashing positivity, and other symptoms that her body was communicating as standing standard operation. And began I began to recognize how kundalini yoga was actually holding her body captive and not opening opening it up into freedom and space. It would take several more years and many more embodiment, sexual embodiment practices before she could recognize her almost constant disassociation from her body as a shamed-based self-image disguised as perfected projection and bright light energy as her outward persona. For several years, she stopped teaching and practicing kundalini yoga entirely except at the european yoga festival in 2016 2017 2018 and she was oscillating between her love of kundalini yoga and her vitriol for aspects of the teachings that felt false riddled and riddled with corruption in march 2020 she finally experienced total liberation or what felt like that and it felt like an unhooking from her crown her tenth gate to finally see and hear publicly what her body had been communicating to her loudly for the last eight years, but her mind could not accept. Lies, deceit, sadistic, predatory abuse, and manipulation were at the heart of her conscious community upbringing. So I am excited to share this testimony. It is obviously strange to write your own bio and to do your own interview on a podcast, but I'm going to do the best I can to share um my story, my 3HO story, um, which, you know, includes the beginning of my life and and several years into that, and then a large segment of it not, and then later years again. And what's interesting is that the segment where I, quote, wasn't involved in the Dharma, um, illuminated a lot of cult patterns that I've um, been able to grow and learn from and realize that it was me repeating trauma patterns that I had no idea about. So... I'm going to do the best I can to just brush over large segments of my life, and you'll be able to get that in my future writings and other podcasts that I'm going to be doing and sharing about myself. But I really want to keep this episode specifically to the uncomfortable conversations of being a part of 3HO, because that is the unfoldment of my life. So I was born and raised in um, the Carefree Ashram. Um, My mom and my dad had met many years earlier like at a yoga music something in tucson and um they eventually started this carefree ashram and so that's where i was born i had a brother that was born um, several years earlier and you know my mom had you know left her family from california and joined kundalini yoga through music and the love of the practice and the and gurbani kirtan and my dad joined for yoga and all his reasons and my upbringing was very um, distinctly aware because my mom left quite early. Um, she always spoke to us about us knowing who we were outside of the community. And I and I kind of say that to say that, you know, she really went through a lot in before I was born in infidelity and communicating with Yogi Bhajan about infidelity and then being sent away To uh, become a better wife, so that my dad wouldn't do that. Like, so, you know, early on, she informed us about this history. And she did that kind of ferociously as like a mama bear to make sure that she had a stake in our life. And um, I believed and understood that as much as I could as a child. But now, obviously, the reflection of, everything that's come forth in our community, it it makes so much more sense in terms of the ferocity that she must have had to have to leave the Dharma at that time and to be vilified and to still fight like heck to have a relationship with her children. Um, But, you know, before actually I go more deeply into my story, I want to say that one of the reasons that I feel it's so important to share my story particularly is because I've always held my upbringing in such high regard. I've done the best I could in my life to really reconcile between the hypocrisy and the abuse patterns that I know existed and what I thought was the good health conscious, spiritual consciousness that also existed. And... Um, as I reflect on my life, so much of my internal struggle was about trying to reconcile those two. And so I feel like it's important to share my story because I started facing a lot of identity crisis issues really early and also sexual trauma related patterns early that I didn't cognitively remember, but my body and my sensory memory remembered. And so I want to speak to listeners to just say how important it is that we recognize that we can remember and know that something happened or there was violation that occurred or something wasn't right or something and we cannot have a cognitive memory and we can have a body and sensory memory. And how hard it is to feel like we can validate that aspect and part of ourselves and these forgotten memories and parts of ourselves when we are incessantly around other people who gaslight and victim shame as a part of everyday life. And I didn't realize just how normalized and internalized shame had become in my life and in my body. Because it was so well packaged in bright light and projected spirituality, almost like a spiritual superiority. And I won't even say almost because we know now that it, it was and is a form of spiritual superiority and white supremacy and imperialism and colonialism. So I wanted to start with that. I feel it's important to share because my story really highlights how I've excavated internalized shame out of my system and and excavated this inner tyrant and doing the best I can to still work with that in therapy, but that I absolutely know came from growing up the way that um, I did in 3-HO. So um, back to my story, my parents um, uh, ran the Carefree Ashram and again, you know, I'm a baby, so I, I only know based on the early stories of what Um, you know, my mom and dad had told me, but essentially, um, you know, my mom left early and, you know, she really, you know, I'm going to let her tell her own story. I'm not going to tell her story, but she did the best she could to stay because she loved so much of the community. But ultimately she knew after getting pregnant and with me um, that she needed to Go And she took her kids and and went to L.A. because the only refuge she had was her family. Well, we eventually ended up back with our dad. There was a scenario where, you know, my mom had left us alone in an apartment in L.A., being very used to being in an ashram and being able to leave the kids napping and growing up in community and these types of things, or raising her kids in community. Anyway, needless to say, my brother woke up and I was a baby. And I woke up and we started crying and the police came. And we ended up in Los Angeles foster care, and I was quite young, and don't have any memory of any of this. And we ended up back with my dad and my oldest brother, so Prabhjot. And most of my life, I didn't really know that I had ended up in foster care. I thought at that time, my dad immediately knew and took us. But what I found out later was that my mom had to decide whether she was gonna give up custody to her mom um, or call or let the state know that my dad existed right and we went to him so it was a very hard choice and she chose my father and that is a very significant thing to me because growing up in LA with my grandma would have been a stark different reality than the childhood that I grew up in even in all of what we're recognizing and seeing as abuse. I'm overly grateful for my mom's decision in that moment, which I know she's worked very hard to heal within herself. So I share all that because this is all before I'm one, or maybe a little after I'm one, and we end up back in the ashram. And now I'm with my dad and I'm a baby, and I'm with my brother, and I'm a little brother. So it's me, little baby girl. And from my understanding, lots of different women in the ashrams took care of me. There was a couple different women in the Phoenix Ashram. My dad was, um, if not already, moving towards the director of the ashram at that time. I think he became the director of the ashram around 1980. So he's a single man in this, what is becoming less of a hippie commune and more of like a, a real organized, centralized community, meaning it's centralized in New Mexico or L.A., Yogi YB, I call YB, uh, YB the predator. YB was his spiritual teacher and, and you know, he's taking direction from him. But um, there were, you know, hierarchies in leadership. And so he was like the Phoenix area leader. And, and there was other people in leadership like Joda and my dad ran the ashram and aspects of the ashram most of the time that I was growing up there. Anyway, those early years, never really had any memories of any of that and um, just heard early stories about my cuteness and my brightness. And um, just I remember people commenting on how I could be so happy and bright and self-sufficient so young and um, and even though I had been through so much, you know, something like that. My mom was definitely made out to be the crazy one by a lot of people, just kind of that kind of slanderish talk, that hum, which I also want to point out because the challenge of what a woman went through when she left at that era in the early, late 70s, early 80s. And as children, we were aware of this. You know, we were aware of, we would go visit our mom, and it was very different. My mom had come out as bisexual, so she was teaching us that there was other parts of life. You know, there was other types of sexuality, and she, you know, wore hair down, you know, cut her hair, and, you you know, we could experiment. And she wanted us to know that we had emotions, and we were allowed to express them and have them, and... I don't think I've ever understood the scope of the importance of what she was attempting to instill us at that that time because we're kids. On another end, my mom was also just starting to awaken to her own trauma journey and overshared out of um, protection for us. I know that for sure. She um, wanted to make sure that if there was something wrong, we told her and she wanted to make sure she knew she was a channel to, to communicate. And anyway, as a child, to be able to get this level of information between parents, they didn't talk to each other. My dad really played a lot of manipulative games, being kind of the head honcho of the community and direct Yogi Budgeon and whatever they did to try to ostracize her. I remember she got her house broken into an astounding amount of time. something they like, seven times or in four different places or something. I mean, just crazy things would happen. Her car would break break breaking into, kind of like predatory energy towards her, you know? So it's, and again, she was always made out to be like this crazy, erratic, emotional one. And all she wanted was, you know, her weekend with her kids. If she got her weekend, she wanted her weekend. She didn't want some games being played. Anyway, all that happened growing up. But I have to say that overall, I loved my community. I thought it was awesome. Um, Yeah, I didn't see my dad much because he was the director of the ashram and everybody counseled with him and he was away a lot teaching, doing teacher trainings and classes and talking to yoga students, counseling yoga students, healing. but, you know, up until about three, I'm again, my dad's single and having lots of affairs, sleeping with different people, whoever he's sleeping with. My, he'd already had lots of affairs with my mom. My dad had a long history of frequenting his yoga students, which we now know is a pattern, not unique to him. Yeah, so. When I was about three, my dad was told to be married again. Um, him and my dad, uh, him sorry, him and my dad, him and my mom didn't, um, like, they, they were basically arranged. But it was, like, before arranging from Yogi Bhajan was happening. It was kind of like the early people who ran the community. And hopefully my mom will come tell her story because she has lots of stories from these early days. Um, but anyway, so... Around the three time is when uh, my dad marries my stepmom, Karin, and her son is Mangla, Sadhu Sangeet, and so he and I are about the same age, about six months apart. So our families merge when um, we're about three. And... Um, let's see. I don't know. Maybe I'm about to turn four probably. And then that following year, I remember around the age that I was five, there was the movement where all the kids were starting to be sent to go to school in India. And I remember this really significantly because my oldest brother, Prabh, Prabhjot, during these years when my mom wasn't there and, uh, and, uh, well, the months my mom wasn't there, I'm sure she was coming back and forth, but then even when, you know, she wasn't living with us and she was down the road, my brother would be taking care of us a lot. So those early years, when I was younger than three, Prob was really around and then we married Cutting and then I just remember Prob leaving and I remember this just being a big deal, you know, like, oh my gosh. So now he's leaving and we were like the only kids, there was only a handful of us kids that left and me and Kieran, Um, didn't go, uh, number one, because our mom didn't give approval. I think that was number one. Um, I find out that the other parent needed parental approval. But also, you know, my dad didn't have the finances of the later years to send us. So I I think there were all sorts of issues with that. Anyhow, it was a big deal to not go to India. I remember being quite young, and there was, like, this event in Gurdwara where the kids that were going to India went up and stood by the musicians and they got like the orange thing around their neck, which I don't know how to even know what that's called. Yeah. So um going back to that, I loved my community. You know, our community was really cool. You know, there was like Heber camp, which was like land up in the mountains. And I remember our community like had longer program where Monday through Friday there was a community meal and everybody in the community like had to pay for it as well as like had to serve on a missile of cooking and clean or cleaning or shopping or whatever, however the missiles broke down. Again, I'm a kid. I don't know. But I just remember the community aspect of it. And, you know, later in my life I understood that my dad was really into community and studying community and learning about conscious community and all sorts of things about community. Um, But, you know, these were significant things about our Phoenix ashram. You know, we became, you know, there was the drug treatment program, I remember, up in Tucson. And my dad was quite affiliated with that. I remember being quite young in the early 80s. And my dad talking about the drug program and how, like, people with AIDS and cancer and different kind of diseases that you know the medical field says nothing can be done are practicing and you know doing doing Kudalini yoga and you know getting better and and getting off of drugs. So there was just like all this you know grant funding and I just remember this stuff. But again I'm young and um just fragments of memories, right? And then you know, my dad was very significant in running and doing teacher trainings all throughout the Phoenix Valley, and I remember so many yoga students. I remember just wonderful opportunities that we met, people that were cool human beings, a lady that came in from Peace Corps and taught us about West Africa and lived in the ashram and other cool yoga students. and. All the yoga students, of course, liked us because our dad was like the head dude and taught yoga. And he, he was a powerful and great yoga teacher. And so I remember like sneaking in to his classes or after the classes and being like the cute kid that everybody adored. And um, yeah, so I remember the Thanksgivings in Phoenix ashram that were so cool. And kids from other ashrams would come and hang out and we'd play fun games, especially when the older kids came back from India and so at this time, you know, Joda and my dad are, are running the ashram. Joda was the accountant and CPA. And our community had really grown since the early 80s. You know, we had bought several houses all around the block. And I remember thinking, how remember, you remember know, my dad teaching me about how because it was a nonprofit, they were tax non-obligated. And um, they were able to buy homes cheap and then flip it. And the people in the community had the skills to fix them up. And. You know, we housed a lot of people that were kind of like renegade nomads from other communities that needed more support. We had this fourplex and we had the eightplex and we had all these extra homes. And so it was just an interesting, amazing upbringing. I felt like right in this urban area of Phoenix, we had this like urban community within a a community. And um, it was special. You know, we didn't lock our doors. We went across. I I could go next door and there was this code lock and, you know, there was games and we played together and, you know, I don't know. These were just kind of interesting memories. And, you know, I went to public school, though. So because I didn't go to India, I went to public school. And I remember being glad I was going to public school because I was a bit aware that when the kids would come back from India. A lot of them didn't know how to integrate or talk to people outside of our community. Um, I remember being quite young and maybe around seventh, I want to say maybe seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade or something. And um, some black kids came over looking for me that were sent over for my school friends. And I remember my two friends in the community ran away when they came And I just remember being so surprised, like a little shocked like, oh, that was weird. Um, So then I suggested to these guys, I was like, let's just go ahead and walk out and we could talk. So it was like my first awareness into um, ignorance and racism in our white community. Um, And I remember thinking to myself like around when I was like 11, 10, 11, like, if, these te- if, if our teachings are for everybody and we're all so inclusive and all is one and we are all one and God is in us all and we should see God in all, why are there no black people? And I remember thinking that, of course, I had known that Krishnakar existed, but I don't remember seeing many more. Like anytime we went to L.A. in Baisaki, you know, in the sea of whiteness was maybe a handful, maybe like five black people. So I, I just remember noticing these things as a kid. By the time I'm, like, 12, you know, I'm in seventh, eighth grade, and I'm in public school, I'm pretty aware, you know, yeah, you know, you don't go to public school and not realize how different we are, right? We're covering our hair, but, you know, pretty early we rebelled against wearing Bonna going to school, but we were still, I was definitely still covering my hair and wearing a reach knot cover and all of that, but... I really early didn't like wearing a turban. Even as a kid, I hated wearing a turban. I hated covering my ears. If you ever see my ears, my ears are big and I just, I hated it. So I didn't find enjoyment in wearing a turban until many years later when I started wearing my turban with my ears out. But anyway, um, I also started rebelling like in small ways, like I wanted to wear Colorful Rishina covers. So, you know, in all my infinite wisdom as a seventh and eighth grader, I—I might have been younger. Actually, it probably was like more like fifth and sixth grade. Um, I would wear a bandana color-colored bandana Reesina cover, and I wore this kind of cool, sophisticated Reesina cover that kind of like added a little bit of sass and style. And, you know, so these were ways I was like trying to branch out and have a sense of an original identity in a community that didn't feel like it gave me much space to be original or express myself. And I remember being real confused sexually, like interacting with men and um, any interest a boy took in me, I'd be like totally frozen and not sure what to do. But I also remember being so confused because there was so much sexual energy hyper around. I don't know if I could completely name it, but I definitely knew my dad was sleeping around with several yoga students that we were all very close to. Um, one that was really close to our family, almost a daughter in our family. Um, she was very young, and 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 also other ones. I remember other really significant women that that played a role in my life that were my that ended up being my dad's lovers and long-time lovers, not even women that he ever apologized or regretted, you know, and just the convoluted confusion of that because they were my friends and sponsored me and helped me in many different ways growing up um, or just befriended or supported, you know. Anyway, so all that was happening and um, so I'm going to public school and anyway, I never really thought we would ever leave our community. My whole worldview was very much in the amazingness of this bubble and that I was kind of like learning to kind of be in both worlds and have friends everywhere and that kind of thing. Anyway, by around 1992, um, my dad informs me that him and my stepmom are gonna move to Minnesota. There had been some changes in the community. Their are uh, in leadership, basically, the way that structures, they had been changing the way structures of the ashrams uh, from directors to, say, like committees of women or committees of people running the ashrams or something of this nature. And either way, my dad was no longer the director and, and he didn't want to stay in the community. And you know, I didn't know they were, quote, leaving the community. I, he didn't frame it like that. My dad was the master philosophical framer um, of things. And so, yeah, so him and my son moved to Minnesota and he asked me if I want to come. And he says, you could stay here and live with someone else in the community and keep going to school. You could move with your mom. You could come with us. So he gives I remember him giving me these options. I'm a pretty independent 13 year old, um, which by the way, I, I didn't really give a lot of background on this, but you know, as a rebelling 11, 12 and 13 year old, I'm, wanting to do things that he doesn't want me to do. So including pierce my ears or shave my legs, or I never thought about cutting my hair. I wasn't ever close to that, but I want definitely wearing my hair down. That was a big one. So what my dad told me was that he doesn't mind me doing any of these things as long as I could talk to him and explain to him why I wanted to do them. Okay, so anyways, that was a setup for failure because essentially there's no way that I was ever coming up with a reason that I could ever justify to get my dad not having a rebuttal rebuttal argument. And so that went on for years until one day I was just like, look, I don't know why I want to shave my legs. I just do. I want to do it and that's what I want to do. And I remember like, these are the types of conversations that I would have with him butting up against rules. Anyway... So, you know, I did eventually get my ears pierced. I did eventually shave my legs. I did eventually, you know, wear my hair down in a bun and not cover it. Where, you know, these were monumental deals in our life, right? Anyway, so we moved to Minnesota. My deal with him to move to Minnesota was as long as I don't end up on a farm. I'll move to Minnesota I don't know much about Minnesota. Of course I had visited my family relatives a little bit uh, growing up, but that was really sparse, sparse. And um, both my parents were just quite estranged to their families. They, their families were quite in touch a little bit here and there, but I I don't remember them being as effortful back. And um, so we moved to Minnesota. And I'm excited about it. I'm really done with my school in Minnesota, in uh, Phoenix. I'm bored. I'm not enjoying it. I hear Minnesota's a better educational system. I'm looking forward to it. And quite early, I, I don't like it right away. And I'm like, it feels like a prison. It was very different than Arizona. You know, it was a, built upward and enclosed because it's winter versus Arizona, which is spread out and more like walking on a college campus. And so very quickly, I remember not liking school and telling my dad I wanna quit. And my dad's response is, okay, then quit then. I look at him, I'm like, come on, like, that's not helpful. And, you know, he took such different philosophy on things. And one of them was education. And he always incessantly would talk to me about this growing up about how to teach me to think out of the box and how the educational system was really just like the prison system. And it was just trying to keep people conforming to a certain way of thinking. And he would always go on and rants in in these ways. So he taught kundalini yoga in maximum security prisons for a lot of my childhood. And I remember corresponding with maximum security prisoners who were like hooked on kundalini yoga and it was like a lens into a life which now I think back at that I'm like that is nuts but anyway um so you know my dad's thinking you know giving me parallels between like why I'm frustrated with my education and how to question things and think differently about things. Meanwhile, this first winter in Minnesota, I see my dad drunk as a damn skunk. I mean, he literally comes clean. He's a full-on alcoholic, hidden closet alcoholic. He comes clean about all his infidelity, all the women he slept with during my childhood that I know. I remember sitting across from him. I'm like 15. And I'm like, you damn hypocrite. You piece of shit. You wouldn't let me eat sugar. You wouldn't let me shave my leg. You made me create an argument for why I wanted to X, 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 X. And now you're busy doing all these things. And he's like, I'm just a man. I'm like, pathetic. That's what that is, pathetic. And I was angry, and I yelled at him. And, you know, essentially, you know, he was like, I don't think I'm monogamous. I don't think I ever wanted to be monogamous. I always wanted to have children, but I never wanted to be married. My teacher always told me to be married. Like, this is me. And, you know, I'm like, look, it's perfectly okay to not be monogamous, but you may want to tell your wives before you marry them, number one. And you may just want to tell your spiritual teacher, no, if it doesn't interest you, have enough fucking balls to know what your sense of self needs. Yes. So anyways, I'm 15 and telling my father this. So you know how well that goes. He takes it, you know, and basically from then on, I mean, I start developing a friendship with my dad. Right. And and he's off the pedestal, no longer kind of like uh, someone I value as guidance. And simultaneously. I see him drunk and like blackout drunk, like blackout drunk, like not remembering crazy shit he did the day before. And me and my stepmom bond super tight over this winter because I'm looking at her like, yo, has this been happening my whole childhood and I never saw? And I don't even remember about all that. I don't think that was the case. And her and I just like, I just remember getting like real close and connected and me getting further away from him. And then I start One day he crawls in my bed, drunk as a skunk. And I'm like, look at, and then I crawl out of my bed. Again, he's almost a stupor. Crawl out of my bed and I go crawl in bed with cutting. And I was like, that was scary. And yeah, so that was my first experience at having a body memory and not having any idea what it meant. I didn't have a memory that it associated with. I just knew in that time I was like, whoa. Yeah, my dad did that to me as a child. Whatever that was, he did that, and I didn't have much more to process of it. But I definitely, throughout the next few years, I, I definitely had some uh, more awarenesses. Like, yeah, I was molested by my dad when he was drunk as a kid, and I don't, I don't know much more. So, anyways, it wouldn't be till maybe my senior year in high school in the wintertime and I, I think it might've been earlier, maybe junior, but whatever, I did confront him about it. And you know, he gaslit me and spun it around and philosophically just put that right back at me. And how dare you think that I could ever do such a thing? And what are you saying? And you know, just stuff that made me feel like I was crazy balls. And I knew enough to just stop talking and trust myself and and contain it back of myself. So um that happened but um more before you know before that awareness before that conversation um that first year was the year I witnessed my dad like that and then that summer I went to Summer Solstice so I'm 16 years old and it had to have been the summer of 93 and this is my last year at Solstice and I I turned 16 and i'm a guide at solstice and um the i am probably a guide because i want to do tantric so this is my first year doing tantric because we never did tantric growing up we were just around tantric like every child every vacation we took was to some tantric or kalsa council growing up all the time since i was born we was we were going to solstice and um so, yeah, this sum, this summer of 93, I go to Solstice. I'm 16, and I'm a guide for the kids. And I remember my kids that I loved so much. It was just such a delight, these beautiful little girls. And I'm really into being a guide and taking care of them and being the best missile and all the things. And I remember also distinctly I didn't really fit in with anybody. Like my two best friends, Guru Dave, growing up, they both had gone to school in India and had really morphed into, you know, beautiful beings on their path. And I was on my path. And of course, we still loved each other and wrote to each other and talked, um, you know, but there was just a natural distance happening. And I remember that year was when Gurudev was um, engaged to Jagat Guru. And I have letters that she was writing to me at that time. and. Um, so that was the last year I saw any of my friends, really, at Solstice. And um, that year, I was at my I was walking, and my left hip went out. And I couldn't walk. And I remember, again, I was a guide, so I couldn't take care of my missiles. And I think her name was Sava Simran Sirikar, was my Jettadar leader. And she um, had to take care of my girls while healers were going to try to help me to get walking again and i don't remember who worked on me but i remember Satsanamkar. namkar this one healer came to talk to me and she did some off body hands-off work on me and i remember her looking at me and saying to me are you sexually active and i said no not at this time but i have been before and, and she says well no matter whether you're sexually active or not You have so much sexual energy in your body, you're going to need to move it around and learn how to move your energy throughout your body, or you're going to end up with health issues growing up as you get older. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Thank you. They carry me down the hill. They bring me to Kalsa Chiropractic. I want to say his name was Guru Chuddin. I I don't remember. But he was the chiropractor in New Mexico in Española. And... I remember this so significantly. He adjusts me and he looks at me and everything. And he's like, so you're getting your period and everything okay? And I was like, well, no, I haven't. I mean, I started normal, like at 13 or whatever. But then I haven't had it for a little while. And um, and he said, how come? And I said, well, I don't really know. I've never been to a doctor before. And he's like, you've never been to a doctor? And I was like, no. And... I didn't think we'd do that. I think probably was my response. And he was like, Grunishan. And he looks me dead in the eye and he said, you need to go to a doctor. You need to get their information and make sure your organs okay and every all your organs are okay. You don't have to take their advice or their opinion about what they find but you do need to find out if everything's okay inside you. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that makes sense to me. So anyway, they get me walking and I go back and finish that solstice and whatever and go back to Minnesota for the following year and I go get my first pap smear. And I remember talking to the doctor and she, you know, she does my pap smear exam and she's like, nope, everything looks good to me. You're perfectly fine. She's like, do you want me to put you on birth control pills and to regulate your cycle? And I was like, well, is that going to help me know whether or why my cycle went away in the first place? And she's like, no, it's not going to help you know that. It's just going to make it come back. And I was like, hmm, okay, no, I'm good, thanks. So anyway, I started... Asking myself asking my body. What's going on? Where did you go cycle what happened? What's what's going on inside you and I started doing? Meditation every morning with my dad. We would do anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes depending on how much time we had before he took me to school And we did my favorite meditation, which was long echoing cars. It's always been my favorite meditation and it still is of the tradition that I was raised in and yeah, so meditating on the sound current and asking myself, and one day I had this flash and the flash I had was this vision and it was something like, you're trying to emulate men. And I just kind of had a flash of just being a child and having my brothers and my dad and anyway, it was just something that meant something to me at that time. and. And so I leaned back to soften into myself and, you know, within the next few weeks, my blood started. And I remember falling in love with my moon cycle and my blood cycle because of that. It was a reminder of my femininity. It was a reminder that I am woman and I am feminine and that's beautiful. And um, I started examining and looking at all the ways that I was like overly masculine at that time. And I didn't know how to even wear a skirt and I put my ID in my back pocket with some chapstick and, you know, these were just parts of the way that I had shaped and survived my life, right? So anyway, I remember that next year in Minnesota being a real bountiful exploratory year for me. Um, On the dislike of school, my dad had found me a independent learning educational program that was a part of the public school system in st paul minnesota it totally helped me um, shift um, we had found that the, the semester before, so my junior and senior year were just flourishing years for me. Very exploratory. I, I kind of operated in high school like most people do in college, and I was taking a lot of university classes and community working and starting my own businesses as a nanny and and just doing lots of things that um, really fostered my independence and my insight into the world. And. I was really grateful for all that that shift in education. It helped me really think out of the box. And, you know, unconsciously, I know that I just knew I needed to get out of the country. By the time my senior year came, so many of my friends and my family, my two brothers had gone to school in India, and and India was so much a part of our upbringing and culture. I just wanted to get out of the country. It wasn't even an option in my being. I wanted to leave the country. And I'm reconciling all the ways that I'm very close and connected and and love my father and how much influence he had over me um, with body memories that I didn't fully know what to do with. Um, I'm very independent and, um, again, recognizing the uh, alcohol abuse among other ways that my dad wasn't um, financially supportive or other supportive ways of our household that the cutting was really sh- carrying the, ba- the load on that. And I was pretty much financially independent um, through my senior year of high school. So by the time I graduated, I was pretty well defined that I was moving to Africa. And I was very steadfast in my sense of self and my identity. I think I my identity was just a really cool Uh, down-to-earth human being. I felt like I had really uh, started to shed the dogma of where I was coming from in the way I was raised and keep kind of the health consciousness and kind of like morph into this new sense of identity of who I felt I was in the world. And um, so by the time university came, I wanted to leave. I wanted to go to university in Africa and find a school that I could do independently. And um, I was able to find a program and earned my way into this program. And and I left right for Africa when I was 18. So I did this all on my own. I earned my own money. I found my own program. I petitioned to the board to get permission to go right overseas instead of have to do a year in the United States. And I was excited. I I don't even know how I did all those things, to be honest. I just made all those things happen and flew overseas. I remember my mom and Baba Siri Singh coming out and um, to Minnesota. I remember uh, all sorts of other people like Am and Rama and Prab and Susanna and just different people would come out to the farm when I was different stages in high school. And so again, it was just another really cool aspect of community that I felt like no matter whether we had left or not, nobody had left anything. Our, our community still existed. Our relationships and the people we loved, we still got to see. And and we just kind of like nomaded on. And I, I really loved the idea that I could travel different places in the world. And there were ashrams that I could perhaps stay in. And, yeah, they might have rules that I would have to live by that I don't subscribe to in my life. But I could get into that if, if I was open to being in that, that particular ashram in that city. Um, either way, I was really into kundalini yoga. And, and my dad was still very much teaching. And I taught... Um, you know, infused a lot of philosophical teachings and, and these types of things throughout all my high school curriculum. Anyway, so I morph into uh, Africa by the time I'm 18 years old. I arrive in Africa and uh, didn't have any clue that there were Sikhs in um, East Africa. I mean, this is how in a bubble I lived. Um, I didn't have any idea that there was a whole bunch of Sikh all throughout the world, in fact, right? Um, But I remember arriving in Nairobi and my taxi driver was a Sikhie man and I said, I was raised a Sikh and he's like, Satsuri Akal. And I say, Satsuri Akal. And he was just elated, elated. And he drives me immediately to the Sikh temple in Nairobi. I had no idea this was going to happen. And he wants me to meet the Sadhus and meet all the higher ups in the temple and I can stay there and all the things. And I remember meeting them and they were so kind. And then the next thing I know, you know, I'm talking to some of the Africans in the temple and they call me over and they say, you cannot talk to them. And I was like, why? And they're like, they're, and they say terrible words. And again, a lens into like, whoa, I didn't realize that, uh, there was, so much racism from indian sikhs and i remember thinking that to myself in some naive idea that we weren't racist right that our community had some sort of like because we chanted love and light songs and all is one songs that um, our community somehow was better than um them the indian sikh sadhus right anyway random thoughts so anyway, I'm in Africa for um, that whole year. I end up meeting a man that becomes my husband, one of the loves of my life. And, um, you know, I'm wearing my African-style turban. I think in high school I start really getting into wearing a turban more African-style because I can wear my ears out and just kind of wear more vibrant colors. And I just felt like, wow, there was a little bit more roots to it that felt more like me. So that was an interesting um, cultural parallel. Um And so, yeah, there was uh, all the time when I was in East Africa, I was mostly just doing all my writing independently. I started in this university program, but I didn't stay there because I quickly realized I was just taking out school loans and didn't need all that. So I just did my work independently. And another fellow traveler who I had met in Amsterdam um, on my way to Africa, of course, I met my brother who was uh, living in Germany at the time. And We hung out in Amsterdam and lived at the Amsterdam ashram briefly and um, got to see each other before I went on to my journey in East Africa. And um, So, you know, again, it just highlights how much community meant to me and how cool it was that my brother had, you know, gone to the European Yoga Festival. And there was just, you know, there was there was our community in different places around the world. And I really thought that was a huge value. So... um, I had in Amsterdam, I had gotten a business card from Meersingh and he also grew up in the Phoenix community. And then when I was quite young, his family moved to Flagstaff. And so I hadn't seen him for years, but he had come back from traveling through South Africa and Zimbabwe and he gives me this card of Fruits and Roots health food store in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he's like, if you ever get down there, you got to go check them out. They're amazing human beings. So I remember just keeping it in my stuff. And I go to Kenya and I do my thing. And then at the end of that year, I'm broke. I, you know, I had $1,000 that I lived on a year, something silly. And I had my return ticket. And, you know, I met my, my husband, but, you know, I was under no illusion that I could support him. I mean, I had no money. I'm a traveling student. So, you know, we loved each other, but it wasn't like, let's get, lo- let's get married and whatever. We just met and loved each other and I was going to travel on and, and we didn't really know where we'd meet next. So um, I remember being in Kenya and wanting to stay in Africa and deciding, should I keep my ticket? Should I use this ticket back to the United States and go back home broke or should I just stay here and be broke? And I was like, I'm going to stay. And I remember wrote, wrote to Pritam Huddy and Harbadjan, who ran Fruits and Roots in South Africa, and told him I was an independent student, an independent learner, and I'd grown up in the 3HO ashram, and I was wondering if I could come down and work with them and live there. And I remember them writing back saying, we don't have much to offer you. We, we can't pay you much, but yep, okay, come, you know. And so I thought that was just the coolest. And I remember being in Kenya, and, um, you know, my my husband's family they were some of the poorest of the poor, but some of the most amazing people and humans I'd ever met in my life. And I knew I'd come back. But again, I didn't have an option to stay. I had zero money, nothing to contribute to help them. And so my I realized looking at the Indian Ocean, holy crap, my oldest brother is in India. Right now, he's in Bangalore. Because at the time, this is like 93, he's working in Bangalore along with Cut in and Akasha and it's, you know, the whole health scribe and Singh, and I don't know much about all that. I just know my brother's got a cool opportunity working there and um, so I call him. I'm like, he's the closest family member to me and I miss my family. So gosh, he flies me in to see him and I get to stay with them for a month and it was like a month respite from the dry deserts and survival mode of Being alone in East Africa. So that was amazing. And then he flies me to South Africa. And I start my life in South Africa. And that was amazing. I lived in their yoga center, they had Fruits and Roots Health Food Store which was like a block from their ashram. And it was right in this cool area called Yoville. And it was like this budding community that was always like a mixed community, even during apartheid. And there was just so much life and vibrancy. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about the amount of, um, dangers that were kind of on the rise. And, you know, I didn't see it at all like that. I just enjoyed this budding sense of freedom that people were experiencing and exploring and discovering. And I taught yoga in the ashram and I loved community. I loved waking up in the morning and doing sadhana together. I loved yoga classes. I loved these are parts of my upbringing. I loved and still love and um, eating together and community times. And I do have to just say this is definitely registered as one of the most happiest and beautifulest times of my life. I was independent. I was making money. I was living halfway across the world. It was awesome. Um, not too long into living there, my Husband at the time, Fiswali, he writes saying, hey, can I come down and work with you? My visa to America didn't work. We were trying to get him a work visa to America with Baba or somewhere, someone, because he had a daughter in Minnesota that we wanted him to see. So it was just all just trying to help people get where we need to go, right, to keep the love connection. So I wrote him back saying, you know, I I don't know. I'll ask them but I don't think you're gonna like it here like you can't eat meat you can't drink you can't smoke we can't have sex unless we're married just all these things you know and I just said all these things and anyway he decides to come anyway and later on he told me he thought I was joking but um, you know, I knew that I could adapt to his culture and how much I liked it. I, I didn't ever know if he could adapt to mine. And, you know, we never knew how he would do in America until he came to America. But I never at that time ever thought that we would ever come to America. My thought process was I could live in South Africa and I could create a living wage and somehow live in Africa and we could have a life there. So I was in that little naive bubble. Um but anyway, within that year, I, I lived there for a while. Absolutely enjoyed that. Um, I had a funny story in South Africa. Um, there's so many things I don't remember about that time, but there's so many wonderful things I do. And Honey Budgeon was the, their young child. And um, again, I'm doing a lot of independent writing and kind of taking my experiences and writing them up for my future academic achievements. And um, so I... Um, Remember in Kenya, I was complaining to my ex all the time that my hair felt really thin and it was falling out and I wanted it to be thicker. And he was like, well, just stop combing it. It'll it'll get thicker. And he was and I was like, no, my hair won't do what your hair does. My hair won't dreadlock because I I'm white. And he was like, no, that's not true. And then I didn't believe him. And so I didn't do it. But in South Africa, I kept complaining. And I remember one day he's like, just stop combing your hair. So I decided to give it a try and I remember he, he's like let me take care of it and he would massage my scalp and he would like wash my head in oil and avocado and eggs and he would massage my scalp but we wouldn't comb my hair and this was a big deal because growing up combing our hair was a really big deal. And it was a part of the reverence of having hair, right? It was a part of the 5Ks, right? And so combing it up in the morning, combing it down and covering it and just kind of the reverence of hair and and the antenna and the energy of it. And um, so I decided not to and uh, let my hair do what it's gonna do. And it was just so funny because you know I covered my hair in, in a turban a lot of the times, but sometimes I needed it to breathe. And I just remember, like, it had to have been months, 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 and it must have been, like, seven months or something. And I remember Pritam Hadi coming out one time. I'm sure you won't remember this story. And she had her comb and her brush, and she was like, I have an idea. Let's have a combing hair party, and let's comb our hair together. And I looked at her, and I was like, I haven't been combing my hair for months. And she was like, oh. Yeah, I thought something looked a little messy. And it was so funny to me because it was like, again, it was a really hyper-aware understanding of how much identity shaped me. Like, oh my gosh, if I don't, if I don't comb my hair, this is going to be a jab at my identity. And can I face that in, in the face of, of somebody's criticism of this choice of mine? And, and kind of I started learning how to actually revel in the rebel identity. So like whether it was from very young and wearing a pink Rishna cover or just all these ways that I was like fighting to find myself, right? And kind of then finding myself being steadfast in, I'm going to constantly be a rebel, you know, tell me I can't do something and I'm going to prove you that I can. And that started to become a part of my persona. Anyways, I started missing my family, decided I wanted to go back home. Um, get enrolled in school, get my education um, official. And then I wanted to come back within the year. And I was going to live in South Africa and do some educational based. I was doing my education experiential kind of work. And so I go back to America. And in this short period of time that I'm there, my dad has found a university program at the University of Minnesota for his own education. I get enrolled. I'm the youngest student because this is a program designed for adults who quit their university and then want to kind of take their lived experience and get it counted, counted for credit. So I get approved and I go through this really intense writing um, initial dissertation semester and um, so I can get official. And once I'm official, then I can go back to traveling wherever I want. So I had to stay in Minnesota for this period of time. Faiswali's back in Africa. This is really hard. We love each other. I'm trying to be here for educational purposes so I can move my education along. During this time, I get a call from my brother in India. And he says, Guru Jodh Singh is looking for somebody who has experience in Africa and India to do research on nonprofits and da-da-da-da. And I thought of you, so I recommended your name. He may be calling you blah, blah, blah. So once again, I want to point out that the theme of what was so amazing about my upbringing was the community connections. It really, in my life, I felt like, wow, education doesn't matter as much as my experiences matter, or um, connections and my network is what mattered. So while that is a true statement, I really also um, kind of thought, oh, I because of the connections in the world that my community offers, I can figure out a blossomed life through this. And anyway, I kind of digested and thought that was a pretty cool reality at the time. Um, so I'm, I ended up getting a call from Guru Singh. this is how I end up in the Herndon, Virginia ashram around, I want to say 19, it had to have been like 98, 99-ish, maybe 90." Maybe 98. Um, I have to have been around 21, 22. And I'm working for Guru Jyot Singh in this kind of quasi position for this Company that he was starting called Shield Corporation, I think that's what it was called. And I was like doing everything from researching not for profit NGOs in DC, which I found fascinating as heck. You know, of course, I'm loving that I get to research these organizations, but I'm not really doing much. He's definitely paying me. Um, I'm he got me hooked up. Um, I'm staying at Guru Trong Singh's house and uh, I remember Guru Fattah Carr lived there because she was his secretary at the time. And Himmet and Shabad Singh were young kids at the time. And so when I'm living there, they were we're all living in a household and I'm living in the cul-de-sac in Herndon, Virginia. And I remember just thinking how different it was. You know, they didn't have longer, but they had um group ramdas meditations every evening which i love group chanting so i thought that was very sweet and you got to go to different people's homes and um you know just meeting the different people in the different communities and i had always heard about a lot of the kids that were from this community and i knew bog bogwan from my you know same age as my older brother and you know, only reason I knew most of the kids in the community was from my older brother. You know, we we had the kind of the cool kid connect, because my oldest brother was a part of that oldest generation. And so we kind of were always like scooped in as included, which is awesome, right? So here in this case, again a connection. I'm working for Gigujo Singh. And um because he's so busy with investors and health scribe and all the other things he's doing this project that he's wanting to get going that I'm there for is like barely getting off the ground in whatever capacity it's going Um, so I don't have a lot to share in that community I just remember it being um, very significant I took care of Sebong and um, I don't remember his brother's name Um, but I was sad to hear that their parents are like major deniers Um, anyway so I remembered them she was like one of our marching teachers when I was at ladies camp I remember that uh, own car. I think her name was. Anyway, so um, one of the stories I wanted to tell about Jote in New Mexico was not in New Mexico. Sorry, in Virginia was I had dreadlocks at this time. So I forgot to t- finish telling the dreadlock story. But with um, so at this time, my dreads are barely coming in. Right, they're they're. My lifetime of hair shrunk up into like seven dreadlocks. It looks really messy and a bit horrendous. And I have him wearing a turban most of the time. But sometimes I wear my hair out. I'm wearing bright orange, colorful turbans. I loved it. And so at this time, he says to me something like, do you want to um, call? Uh, we could call up uh, Yogi Bhajan together and... Um, Ask him what he thinks about dreadlocks and I just remember looking at him and I was like, no, actually, I really don't care what Yogi Bhajan has to say about my dreadlocks, but thank you so much for the suggestion and I remember leaving. So anyways, I was very much boldly who I was, um, but also very much in love with so much aspects of our community and, and Kundalini Yoga and meditation. And I was very bold to the things that I wasn't into, like wearing white and not having dreadlocks. So those were a couple examples. Um, and I remember at one of the chanting, I was at chanting one night and I met Bhagwan Singh and um, him and I were chanting together and he looks over at me and he says, hey, I'm gonna go to DC and watch my son play jazz. Do you want to come? And I was like, who's your son? And he's like, Bogwan. Well, Bogwan was like my childhood crush. Like I'm eight and he's 18. You know, I thought he was so cute, but really he was just like a brother. You know, it was like that group of my brothers because my oldest brother was 10 years older than me. And so that group of kids again, scooped us up as like our oldest brother gang and our bro- older sister gang. And, it's why I love Davy Kieran or Sumpy or Sirisatt or or just all of you, you know, like Rama and Akasha and Prob. Like uh, you know, you guys were our brother and sister. Connect and really the closest experience to love that I felt in our community. So yeah. Um, I get this invitation from Bhagwan Singh to go see Bhag. And on this ride to D.C., I'm telling Bhagwan Singh my story about how Faiswali is in Africa. And I can't sponsor him to come here. So I'm just earning money so I can go back there and blah, blah, blah. And like little did I know, but like him and his wife, who's Bhagwan Kar at the time, are getting in the middle of a divorce. I get befriended by their family, mostly Bhagwan Singh. And he offers to sponsor my husband to come into America. And like out of nowhere, this is happening. And they don't have to pay anything, actually, but they're putting their assets on the line with the United States government in sponsoring, right? So they sponsor and basically help me fill out paperwork that nobody in my family could help me with. You know, my dad lived off the grid and was actively advocating not having a social security number. That's how helpful my dad was. And my mom was on welfare and was struggling being homeless and all sorts of things. And there was, you know, I didn't have options like that. I didn't think, I didn't come from a family of options, I didn't think about people in my community as having resources that they were here to give me. I just was accepting opportunities when they came. So that's what opened the opportunity for Faisuala to even come here. I didn't even think about that beforehand. Once again, community, how it served me, how it supported um, me so much. So yeah, then uh, that quickly happened and um, I became friends and family friends, longtime friends with Rose. And not too long later, I ended up going to Minnesota. Oh, sorry. Not too long later, we ended up bringing Face into the United States. Guru Jot Singh helps me with this financially, borrows me money, and all of the ways that he supported any youth in that community throughout the years, I experienced that support in working with him at that time. There were weird things, but there were also wonderful things, and I was very much privy to both, and I was appreciative of having the work opportunity. As it became clear that I was no longer working for him, and I started working for other people to try to make ends meet, um, me and Faiswali ended up... Uh, so for a little while, Faiswali and I lived in Guru Trung's house in the basement, and... Uh, Before we got him here, I remember doing this 40-day meditation of Langekonkars. Guru Jot Singh asked me to do a meditation with a young lady that was living there at the time named Manisha, who, quote, was off track. She was doing drugs, I remember her saying. She was really just like smoking cigarettes or something, um, or drinking and he said, "Will you do a forty-day meditation with her? I want you to do two and a half hours of long Kars. And so I was like, "Okay." And I loved like long cars. No, I had never done them for two and a half hours, but I was all game. And I put my intention of bringing Faiswali here. I had the love of Bhagwan Singh and Bhagwan Kar and um, and or Rose, I should say, at the time. And there was just so much love that I experienced at that time, being in the community and um, being in Guru Chong's house and Guru Phatakar, just all of that. So eventually we got him here and um, so there was an entire, we went to Minnesota and there was about an entire decade that I just said, wasn't at all associated with the Dharma 3HO or any of it. It was all through Minnesota and then eventually from Minnesota to, to Chicago and I ended up in a network marketing business and You know, this came after, you know, many years of working in education and working with my father. And um, I remember just being enticed by this business because it wasn't set up as a home-based business. It was set up as a corporate business. And it looked somewhat like a real estate office where everybody had desks and were making phone calls. And they had a real business model to it. And I remember sitting in this business presentation and getting hooked on this idea of residual income. And Faiswali and I are looking for work and maybe he has a job as a chef and I can't find work. And I hear this idea of residual income and I had this dream of being able to get back to Africa and help his family and live there and travel the world and just kind of do the things that I loved, be a philanthropist, but I knew I needed to learn how to make some money. I didn't come from a family of business owners that taught me anything about making money. So I end up in this business, and I'm very charismatic. I'm a great communicator. And I have a big, bright turban, and I have my dreadlocks, and so I don't fit the part. And I'm hyper aware I don't fit the part. They don't like me not fitting the part, and I'm getting off on that. And so I do that for several years. I'm doing my own thing. By this time, my identity is very solidified in being different. I'm proud of being different. I'm proud of going against the grain. You can't change me, and I'm gonna prove you wrong is kind of my philosophy definitely deeply rooted in the pride of being a Western Sikh, being so different, so young, growing up in public school, being asked repeatedly, what's your name? What's your name? I'm just going to call you this. Or what's that thing on your head? What's that thing on your head? You know, you, you grow tough skin. And I remember reporters writing stories about us and then not using our own picture. They would use fake kids' pictures with towels on their head to replicate us. You know, like, you don't go grow up in a childhood like that without growing some thick skin. And so I understood that and a sense of identity. It wouldn't be for several years, I'd say about three years into my network marketing business, that I considered changing my look. And it really came because I wanted something different. I I was able to grow a sales, uh, a lot of sales. I made a lot of sales. I was always quite charismatic in my selling, but I wanted to duplicate and I wanted to grow a team. And they kept telling me that if I followed these steps, one, two, three, one, two, three, that I could get those results. And I remember thinking to myself, what if, what if I did listen to what they had to say and what if they were right? And I remember the moment that I decided to cut my hair and I was um, living Separately from my husband at the time, I was working in an office in Iowa. And I remember calling him and saying, I think I should cut my hair. And he was like, yeah, I dreamt about that last night. And anyway, so that was pretty much confirmation. Not too long later, I cut my hair for the first time. This is about 20. I was 27 years old. By this time, my dreadlocks had grown quite long and they were cool as heck. I loved them. My hair grew so thick and so wild and I was so proud of my beautiful hair for replenishing and growing again and being thick hair. And I was deathly afraid of cutting it. I remember being so afraid of cutting it and I had pondered it for a while. But when we, when I finally did, it was only because of his support and his love and his tender care that I was able to do that and i remember thinking at that time just like whoa like nobody should have this much fear over something even if it's a beautiful right teaching this much fear can't be good for my well-being so i always had an attitude of like leaning into the thing i feared the most that business i'm not going to go into the details because there's just so much in that time frame i want to say about a full on decade But in that business is where I started really questioning um, and examining identity. I cut my hair for the first time. I wore suits. I wore makeup for the first time. I I learned about accessorizing jewelry, nail polish. I learned high heels. I learned presentation, different aspects of communication, but mostly image. And I was fascinated by image. Um, so again, I'm not going to go into that aspect and you're going to read about this and hear about this on my future podcasts, my personal ones, but what I'll say about that time is it was like a PhD in cultural assimilation. And I learned so much about how presentation and, um, uh, perception, affects people's ability to hear and listen and all the ways that that fascinated me I felt like I was learning to I was an actress and I was learning to play a role and that it didn't matter how much knowledge I have if it didn't come in a package that somebody wanted to see and and I liked playing in that arena a little bit because it helped me to um, realize the idolatry of identity how much people worship concepts of identity and outward um, outward dress, but how none of that is actually real and what's actually going on inside of a person. And so it was just a big, big learning period of time for me. And one of the biggest things that showed up was just how hyper full of shame I was. There were things I didn't understand and I started attracting beautiful women in my business. And they always said, in your business, in network, in your network marketing business, you attract who you are. And so, you know, I started attracting all sorts of really powerful, beautiful women. And they were sophisticated. And they just, they wore suits well. And they, they were just bombshells. And... Of course, I didn't see myself like that. Other people did. And I remember, this is quite late, by 2007, eight-ish, I want to say, I had a girl in my sales team, and she just said, you know what, I can't stand it anymore. And I said, what? She was like, you have too banging of a body to not show it. And she grabs my suit, and she said, your suit should look like this. And she squeezes the back of my suit, and it's showing my curves. And in that moment, I just realized, wow, like, I am so not comfortable wearing that. Like I was very, as much as I was learning to dress and, and, and be sexy and these types of things, there was so many barriers I had to break through for even small amounts of, of revealing. I wasn't even revealing cleavage. It was just like showing the curvature of my body. And so that was like awakening into, wow, huh? There's some shame stuff happening here. And. Lots more that kind of came out and came trickling out. But eventually that business, around 2008, I started um, getting woken up to really abusive um, patterns in that business. And one of the biggest things was that my sales team was waking me up to patterns in the business that were abusive to me. And they were like, can't you see? You are amazing. Not this system. You. You. And I couldn't see it. Like I defaulted everything to this business that I had built that was the system I had come from. And now reflecting back, I can very much see all the parallels of how that business was so cult. And I was primed for it. I understood how to live in communal settings. I understood how to live on nothing and sleep on the floor and and sacrifice and live on a couple dollars a day. I had lived in Africa for heck's sake and grew up in an ashram. So there were a lot of things about that decade in business that I sacrificed and did. Me and my ex-husband separated. My dad and him became good friends and, and moved off to California. And he's the one who took care of my dad when he passed away. And it wouldn't be till like 2006 that I, when my dad passed and I had to process, you know, his abuse and all the things that next year, I dropped like 50, 60 pounds and cleared a lot of his toxic energy out of my body. And, you know, that next year, 2007, 8, I really, my business exploded. I felt like I had dropped the dead weight of my past and my past abuse and shed the dogma and kind of kept kept the good parts of my life. And around 2008, nine, um, my sales team woke me right up out of my stupor and said, this is a toxic sales model and we're not staying in it. And they pulled me out of the rubble. I had no idea that I had just invested a decade in a really horrible toxic leadership model that was based on fear and scarcity and abuse and tearing leadership apart. And there was this vortex of leadership. Again, I'm not gonna go into this story because. My coming podcast is going to go into detail, but what this event did was it brought me into stark reality with how much fear and um, insecurity I was holding. And so the immediate thing I start doing is the 10 bodies yoga set and I start meditating, right? Doing long echoing cars. Now, this whole decade, I'm not doing yoga at all. I'm just full on in my business and I'm transforming and learning all about my identity and learning about scarcity and money. And there was a part of me that was running from being a yoga teacher and wanting to learn to be an entrepreneur. Because in my childhood perception, there were haves and have nots in our community. And it was people that made money, had the businesses. And the people that didn't have money were the workers. They were the yoga teachers. They taught in community centers and prisons, and they ran local trainings and stuff. So, I mean, that's a real simplistic childlike view, but that was this perception of mine. There were people in the community that had money and we weren't them. So we had to go on opportunities and connections, and I thought I had done that pretty well. So. Um, at this time, I start meditating. I'm doing the 10 Bodies Kriya. I'm, I'm in the middle of a devastating moment in this business. I'm try, they're trying to tear my business apart and turn my leaders against me. It's like full-on ostracization. I mean, it couldn't have been more parallel to my growing up years. We're literally like bunkering down. We're not answering calls. We've all like, anyway, it was crazy. And I'm meditating. And who comes to my ether? My dad and then Krishnakar. My dad and then Krishnakar. So I call up Krishna and she's like, come see me. And we talk and I, I didn't really know why I felt so close to her. I just know I, I always did. And, and um, so that 2009, I went out there. I spent time with her and I was really distraught and crying and I got very clear message that I should move to L.A. and do teacher training. I started getting a clue into why I felt so close with her, that she was around when I was growing up, when my mom was having a lot of trouble with my dad and was trying to get help um, and some sort of respite. Um, Krishna was the one sent to the ashram to kind of calm her down. Um, Krishna had direct communication with my dad because she was the head of like the Southwestern region, the go between, between at that time between Yogi Bhajan and my dad. So she married my stepmom and my dad. So there was just, you know, when I was little, I was on their net, her lap at her, their wedding. So there was just things that it was like starting to make me realize this is why you remember her so much. I do teacher training in 2009-10. I end up moving to L.A. First time that I stop doing my business, I tell my sales team I love them, but I need to get my health back on track. They bless and love me. And that next year I sleep and I do teacher training and I do a lot of kundalini yoga and I'm getting back to what I thought was my center. And I start noticing weird things like why are You know, I thought there were things that, I just couldn't believe it had been a decade. It had been since two, since I was sixteen, so more than a decade since I had been around three ho, and I was like, "Wow, why are they promoting turbans and teacher training or Jepji and teacher training?" I remember just thinking that was weird. Um, by the way, the lawsuits were in full effect right now. I think this is about two thousand nine. I'm living at Guru Tejkar's house in L.A. and I'm taking teacher training with Krishnakar. They were on opposite sides. One was the unto infinity side, and then Krishnagar was like the legacy. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to hear about it. They were just doing whatever they were doing. But I was in both. And I just started to becoming aware of like, wow, there was just masculine energy of Krishna that reminded me of me and my dad. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And so there were just things that Krishna wanted me to teach. I had no interest in teaching. This was all just about my own well-being. I was very much enthralled in my business still. And um, so, yeah, some years went on. I ended up back in Chicago. And there was this, you know, my business comes to a final collapse in like 2012 because I just couldn't heed the call of what was really happening at the time. And when this finally collapsed, it was like ding, 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 ding. Stop. You are repeating something and your soul is repeating something. And it was so loud and clear. I had just lost a business and my residual income that I invested a decade in. Uh, I felt like I lost my family. I was being ostracized. People trying to kick me out of my own community, my own business community. There were so many parallels. It was silly. But I didn't know what to do, and so I just stopped, and I decided to listen to what I was being told to do, and that was to go inside. And so the next eight years, this is from 2012 until, like, 2020, I just kept going inward, and... Um, I got a vision of what I should do and the vision was take my growing up years in spirituality and consciousness and merge it with my business years in marketing and sales and build a brand but what do I stand for who am I what's my identity and so back to this question of identity I started looking inside and realizing wow my identity is wrapped up in being a leader in this business my success as a woman is tied up in that business and I had a lot of grief I had just lost what I felt like was my future. And so I I just knew I had a lot to deal with. So kundalini yoga is where I went, where I'd meditate. It's where I'd practice to kind of feel and learn to process. And that was all I really had to go on. I started, you know, doing a local class at this really cool yoga studio with this woman who I'd met who had dreadlocks and was a total Rasta. And she ran an awesome kundalini studio in Chicago. So, you know, that morphed from one class a week to like seven and I was mainly teaching because it gave me a sense of purpose in the midst of this identity crisis I was going through. I felt like I could teach Kundalini yoga without trying. I did it like osmosis. So for me, it was an entry point into the deepest wounds that I was holding. And it was the way I had to access myself was I had to go into, um, what I thought was the place that brought me back to my center, which was Kundalini Yoga. So that first year, you know, I was grieving so much. And by 2013, August, I launched the first version of my new online brand. I know I'm nowhere close to my purpose, but I also know that I have no idea how long it's going to take me to unravel identity issues that I must be having. And I'm starting to become aware that my brand has to do with sexiness and spirituality and i'm very much triggered by how much fear i have around saying those two things in the same sentence so the first version of my brand is called sassy sexy spiritual and i have so much internal worry that the whole world is going to call me out like how dare you And all I'm doing is saying sassy, sexy, spiritual. But what's happening is my sexuality is coming alive and I'm starting to become aware of how much shame I'm holding that isn't allowing my own authentic expression out. And and so this again is like an entry point into myself. And once again, this whole next eight years, I'm not gonna go into detail because the book I'm writing called The Predators in My Body is what details this eight year journey that I call spiraling into my own center, spiraling into my pelvic bowl and the amount of shame, slut shaming and victim shaming and predatory abuse that I had grown up around that was literally lodged in my body and in my physiology. But at this time, this isn't, I didn't have that much awareness. I just knew I started teaching Kundalini Yoga. I would never really bring up YB because. There was so much I didn't like about him and thought that that was hypocritical about him. I've always thought that he slept with his his secretaries. Um, I had no idea the, the extent of abuse. But what I was practicing at that time, and again, this is like 2012, 13, 14, 15, What I'm actively practicing at this time is how do I embody being real with who I am, my sexy nature, while being true to who I am, my spiritual nature? And how do I not hide one while showing the other? And I really wanted to reconcile how to be both. And so by holding that as kind of my true north, I just started dealing with whatever issue was coming up. And some of the issues were I didn't want to wear white, Why should I wear white? What's the white for? And so I started questioning things for myself. I didn't wanna wear a turban sometimes. Um, uh, There were other things and the women's teachings always bothered me. I never liked them. They always felt off, not in connection to my own feminine nature that I was learning to have a relationship with since I was 16, right? so. I spoke to these things. When I taught, I would talk about transparency, and I would talk about truth, and I would say, you know, don't think Yogi Bhajan was a saint. He wasn't a saint. He slept around. He did things that he told us not to there was corruption. There was everything you could think of. I'm sure he did. You know, I would say this, I said, my dad, he slept around and I would say these things as a way to basically say, don't think that these teachings are pure or this teacher is pure. Anything is the, the, the pathway of perfection because it doesn't exist. You are the truth. You are the living real truth. And only by uncovering your own experience can... You know, and this is the way I would teach. And I would use kundalini yoga as the practice, but I would, I, I, I was teaching from the places I was experiencing, going into the lower half of our body and uprooting the dark energies. And I talked about the lower energy centers a lot. And I was playing in the realm of my own emotional body. I started discovering that I couldn't feel certain emotions. I could feel anger in my body as like indigestion or, um, you know, tightness or heat, but I couldn't actually feel the emotion. And I kept being aware of that. And I didn't know how to access myself. Um, I noticed other things uh, around hyper hyper shaming and kind of sexuality and how this was showing up in yoga students so what i was noticing the most when i was teaching around this time 2014 15 16 and i'm teaching at satnam yoga and thank goodness for satnam yoga i mean the, my girlfriend who ran it you know she was cool as heck she let me do my own experimentation and just be the being i am you know there wasn't the rigidity and the judgment and all that but underneath Within the teachings, there always was there, you know, there was ways in which shame was kind of infused into practices. And I watched this happen as students would morph into kind of these pretend beings, whether it was like as soon as they started practicing, they changed their name and they got a turban on and it was terrible turbans too. It was like back to the towel heads that took pictures of us in the new, new, in the new times. So like these things gritted on me. And things like what I felt to be like the marketing campaign into 3HO and Sikh Dharma. And I just didn't understand why as a kundalini yoga world, there was a kind of a siphoning into a world religion. Like, why are we trying to get people into a whole life, you know? And I did the best I could to not be involved in any of the dogmatic aspects of teachings or 3HO Because I I just really wasn't interested in it. You know, the way that I had mostly reconciled my relationship with the Dharma is there were cool people that still loved us, even if we cut our hair, even if we made other choices, and they still they were they were the practicing Sikhi that I wanted to be a part of because they truly loved us no matter what. And you know, Guru Dave and her family was like that, and Krishnakar was like that to me, and there was plenty of others. But by far, most of the community was very judgmental. If we cut our hair, if we made a different lifestyle choice, if we decided to drink or have coffee or anything else, we were the cast out ones. And you just kind of got used to that. And then over the years, you saw people relax a little bit more. But generally, the ethos was the more somebody left the Dharma, the more relaxed they became, like the cooler they were to be around. But it didn't mean that I didn't identify as a Sikh. I mean, I didn't practice Sikhi by any means, but I always connected to the path of Guru Nanak. And creator and creation are one. And so much of the lifestyle habits I was raised with were still my current lifestyle habits, but I didn't practice other ones and I was trying to embody my sexuality more. So, you know, I knew I knew there were things that automatically made people uncomfortable around me, but I purposely did the best I could to not affiliate with those people in kundalini yoga because I wasn't interested. I could have just cared less, you know, do your thing. Meanwhile, I'm trying to reconcile what I'm starting to notice as like, wow, I think these are trauma patterns inside me. I'm emotionally quite unavailable. I have big shield around my heart. This is really interesting. And I got some sort of like message at the time, like you need to open your heart and you have to go through your pelvis to do that. And so, like this is how I, you know, I was on a spiritual journey inward, and I felt like I was just on my personal journey. Meanwhile, I'm teaching a lot of kundalini yoga and I'm doing the best I can to be as honest and transparent and clear and clean and essentially bring these seemingly opposite parts of me, this duality together. Because the areas I was fighting the most with inside myself was I didn't want to be a yoga teacher because I didn't want a public and private life. I didn't want to live a projected life and then have this secret life like my dad did and like so many yoga teachers like Yogi Bhajan did. And again, these are my thoughts in 2013, 14, 15, right? Before what we know now. So this is all just my inner process and I'm relating, relating everything back to my experience because that's all I can do. I feel like I'm just a soul on a journey. And, um, you know, one, once again, Guru Ganesha Singh was a person who just loved you unconditionally, no matter what, every time I say snotamkari, you know, she loved you no matter what, you know, she didn't judge me if I had short hair or dress different, cut in. And, you know, there were people, that you always got to be with. And to me, that's what our community represented. Meanwhile, um, I just start noticing more and more things. And a lot of these things I'm keeping private. I'm building an online brand, but I'm mostly doing it just to learn skill sets of branding. I'm not yet doing my future purpose. I, I'm in my healing journey and I'm teaching a lot of kundalini yoga while I'm doing it. Because I'm realizing that I had to go back to the original wounding in order to see it clearly. And by 2015, I'm already kind of deep in my exploration around unwinding slut shaming, what if being a slut is a wonderful thing, exploring pleasure and dating and just really asking different questions of myself. I'm doing classes around the lower energy centers, around our sex energy, around dark shadow energies. I'm teaching on these things and I'm starting to get glimpses into my own reality in a way that like pierces my veil and different situations happen during that time that made me look at myself I remember this one theta healer at Satnam said to me one time she was like I don't know what you got with this outside bright light thing and like you're such a sweet little child but something in you is trying to come out and it's not all bright and light something like this and I just remember being like okay thanks you know like I don't know, I had learned to kind of take people's opinions and healer opinions especially and just kind of be like, take that shit with a grain of salt because you don't grow up going to solstice and not get every Akashic record or a reading body healer trying to tell you something about you or your family, right? So it's like, you just learned early, at least in my family household we did. My dad kind of gave us the, this is wonderful and... Don't believe all that stuff sometimes, right? Anyway, I don't even know where I got that. Maybe we got that elsewhere too. Um, so at this time, I'm digging deeper and deeper into myself and I start doing like real, uh, I find this work in New York and it's pleasure research, desire-based research, and this gets me piercing the veil that kundalini yoga couldn't get me to do. At one point, I realized spirit was telling me to stop, do kundalini completely, to rest more. And to completely stop practicing. And basically, you can't access yourself anymore through this. You're blocked here. And I started doing more feminine-based practices, embodied movement, music, slow things, um, really investigating myself through a lens of pleasure and realizing how much I was attached to identifying and learning and being informed by my my pain and how much of my identity was rooted in being informed by my pain. Proving myself beyond it, proving myself impervious to it, proving my resilience of it. Proving, proving, proving. Lots of proving. Um, Lots of performing. You know, let me show you how I can do this so great. And whew. I just started feeling into the deep levels of emptiness happening inside and I didn't understand half the stuff that was coming out of me. Um, I ended up finding a practice called orgasmic meditation, which was perfect because it helped me to access my nervous system in a way that um, rewired me, very similar to the way I felt kundalini yoga did in my nervous system, but it... it um, it wasn't overriding me. It was passive and it allowed my system to to recircuit into my parasympathetic nervous system. And it was, you know, it was dealing with my pussy. So it was like very erotic and it was very much in the area that was not allowed growing up. It was like the polar opposite. Now I didn't end up doing that work because that was a hyper cult. And I loved the practice, but I didn't like the sales model. I had come from a terrible business sales model, and I was hyper alerted to that. And I didn't like the cult energy of the company, so I didn't do any of the work with them. But I took the practice, and I took it to heart, and I did it like therapy, and I did it consistently as I could, and I trained people, and it changed my life. And that, along with transformational breath and other Nervous somatic therapy and other somatic based practices that helped me to create a new relationship to the sensations that my body was offering. That my mind kept overriding and telling me was something else. And it, that was a very confusing time because I started realizing that my yes and my no were crossed. And I would often say yes to things that I didn't want, and I would say no to things that I did want. And that went right back to my early childhood programming that I didn't understand was from my community upbringing. But at this time, because the popularity of Kundalini Yoga is only amplifying all through 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, right? It's all just getting super celebrity. Everybody's like, wow, Kundalini Yoga is everywhere. And, you know, people would meet you as somebody growing up in the community and then like idolize you like oh my god you must have been enlightened by the time you were three blah, blah 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 you know and it's like oh yikes hey what do you do with all that we had already learned to deflect a lot of that at least I had but you know a part of your ego feeds on that you know and so a part of me noticed myself like look at me into that a little bit and yet I also didn't believe it, and yet I could also notice, like, wow, okay, I could see how yoga teachers over time get fed on the personas that their own students give them, like celebrity energy, right? And and I didn't like it. This was a part of, like, the vitriol that was constantly with me in this pursuit of of what is my purpose? What am I here to bring to the world as my own brand? I knew it wasn't kundalini yoga, it was a part of my upbringing was a part of it, but I never wanted to brand myself as a Kundalini yoga teacher. So at this time I was really in this like dualistic, like I was getting clear, like I had a lot to do with teaching about healing trauma and shame and, and owning my sexuality while still being a spiritual being. And I'm writing on these things and talking about it, but I'm very much in my own process. So I, I don't have that strong of a brand exactly. Um, But I am being very transparent in this process. And and the reason I'm sharing all this is because during this time as a kundalini yoga teacher, I did teach at festivals and I taught at Satam Yoga and another yoga studio in Chicago. I didn't overly grow that as a brand because I had no interest in being a yoga teacher. But I had very much a lot of interest in trying to find peace inside with where I come from that there had to have been good parts and bad, right? And I just couldn't figure out why the more I was able to get clear on what I was here to teach, why I had such trouble letting myself do it. Meaning like teaching Kundalini Yoga without wearing all white and a turban, a part of me just felt like it was so disrespectful. And I didn't want to be disrespectful to my lineage. Like, I really wanted to hold it in the highest reverence I could, even while speaking to hypocrisy, right? That there can be good even within the hypocrisy. And so I just, I talked about this as my active part of the process, that this is just a part of our human process, right? And while I was teaching like this and kind of figuring these things out, I just stayed in my own becoming, stayed true to what I felt was true for me and would talk about the things that I wasn't um, really so certain about, right? And again, over the years, I stopped practicing more and more. And I only taught at the European Yoga Festival for a few years, which I absolutely loved meeting all the vivacious Europeans from different countries and watching how Kundalini Yoga expressed itself with different cultural lenses on top of it. But once again, this is the first time I hadn't been back to a solstice in 16. It's 2016 and 17 and 18 that I go to the European Yoga Festival and teach, hyper aware of the overly dogmatic, judgmental folks that are, you know, shaming in subtle ways by suggesting to wear something or look a certain way or why aren't you doing this or just kind of predatory shaming language and still very much was alive and well and then there was others that were just cool as heck so it was once again there it is our community is full of those that are on one extreme or the other and you just find your happy medium and you you find your way to to do it right while I was there, I had heard about the big teachers, like Guru Dave Singh, and I'd, he had come in for Sadhana Versayan, and I had heard about Shiv Charan, and his Karam Kriya, and all the number numerology special school, and students were like gaga over the different people to go see, and me, I loved morning sadhana, I loved going to the local yoga classes, I loved finding the cool people who were not judgmental who were more embodied, who were open to having real conversations around sex and spirituality and hypocrisy and infidelity and you know these things were happening live cartising, you know, at European Yoga Festival. I want to say 2017 and half teachers wouldn't even talk about it, you know. So it's like this is where I started like getting more roots into okay, I'm on my path, you know. But any time I didn't teach a formal yoga class, like when I was teaching my own level of work or my own types of courses, I never felt obligated to wear a turban. I was creating my own creation and I could show up as just me as me versus me as a version that needed to honor where I come from. And believe me, I wasn't wearing a turban because I thought I had to. I was wearing it because I enjoyed it. And if I didn't feel like wearing a turban a day, I would not wear it. And I actively did that as a practice. Um, For myself, to unwrap judgment and fear within myself, to unwrap condemnation and rules within myself. You know, this was no longer about what other people thought about me because I felt like maybe I had moved past that. Um, But the convolution was still very much in me, even the decades out of the Dharma and thinking that I had morphed into all these other identities. So much of this convoluted, judgmental, shame-based stuff was very much stuck in my psyche and in my body. And a level of anxiousness that I, I couldn't quite get a finger on. And anyway, this whole long process of a deep, what I call my deep inner inner journey over the last eight years and to coming home to embodying back into my own body, which included having to get away from <laughs> kundalini yoga um, in order to see what it was actually doing to me. Now, meanwhile, I still was very much rooted that There are aspects to this yoga that are very important. And the nervous system and glandular system level stuff, the sound current, there were just certain things that I had already identified. These are amazing. And I end up doing like this ceremony, this Aya ceremony in like 2018, 2017, May of 2017. And this shaman um, calls me up and she says to me a bunch of stuff. But one of the things she says is, you don't live in your body most of the time. You live in the astral realm. And most people don't know this about you. They think you're here because you're that good at projection and being so shiny and bright. So this works for you, she says. And you know what? You can get away with this for the rest of your life. Nobody will even know. But the things you want as a soul and that you've come here for only are here in your physical body and on the physical realm. And you you need to come back here if you want to do what you came here for. Okay, so I take this in as much as I can on an ayahuasca ceremony, right? And then I go back onto my bed and she goes on later to proceed to tell me that Everything about Yogi Bhajan's a scam and blah, 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 blah. She goes on and on and on. Half the shit I couldn't even listen to. I did not take in that second part. She goes on and on about it, but I did not know how to take that in. So I only took in the part about my own body because that's as much as my consciousness could register without going online. So that next whole year, 2017 into 2018, all the rest of 2018, I'm in full active calling my spirit back into my body practices not getting into it on this podcast but it was serious and it was potent and that last year at the european yoga festival was my last year there and i remember thinking to myself how sad it was that they were marketing yb as i remember looking at the facets of the master video after tantric and watching it play and Looking at that video and thinking, it is so sad that they're painting him out to be a master. All of the tantric facilitators, which every one of them I know, I know and I love. Um, I remember them just painting the the lovey dovey, amazing YB stories, painting this nostalgic picture for all these hungry yogis that are in the formation lines, taking in the juice of distant, ancient futures, right? It was just, it was a scene. And I remember thinking, this is going to come back around because he was not a saint and n- no truth can be hidden forever. I thought that to myself. Anyway, whew, the next couple years was a bit of integration for me. I was on my way back out into the world. I felt like I'd hit my center and come back out. And I was actively now practicing teaching provocative concepts, um, while still fully engaged in my community. And it was the first time I had lived back in Phoenix and I loved it. It was so healing and integrating to be back in my childhood community, teaching kundalini yoga at Yoga Phoenix that my sister-in-law helped to run at one point and my dad helped to start at one point, And my brother was living in the community and one of my best friends growing up and I was very much embodied and proud of of my erotic expression and my authentic expression of my erotic self while being fully expressed spiritually. And and it was a process of feeling whole in doing this um, and safe. And so to be able to practice and be me in my community and not feel overly judged, mostly, mostly accepted, only once in a while judged was so cool. It was very healing for me and very loving. And me and my brother got to get really close in a way that I don't think we had a chance to because we were little when we married and he went off to India at nine. So that was just a meaningful moment. And then I want to just go ahead and like fast forward 2020 Premka book comes out. And before Premka, I actually read Guru Nam's post on Facebook. And Guru Nam Singh is a musician I follow. I've always appreciated his music. All my kundalini years, the last eight years, I was going through real dark times, and there was musicians that helped, and there was yoga sets that helped, and there was community that helped. But mostly it was my guidance and listening that helped. And when he posted... That he believed what Premka talked about or whatever. I was like, what is he talking about? And I read that book so fast. And when I read that book that Pamela Sahara Dyson wrote, it was like I knew her. I remember her at eight. And it, it was like the first time understanding that the collapse of my business was like the epitome of what so many first-generation people have gone through. And I was reading my story and their story. And I was reading and feeling body memories out of my body as I read her story of the leadership vortex and people's perception of her, even to this day, whether in second gen or first gen, and, and not understanding what it means to be on the inside of a leadership vortex like that. And that's what it felt like when I was in network marketing is it it's like, I remember striving so hard to become a leader and then being identified as one and learning as one. And then to start witnessing manipulative, coercive behaviors After earning and working so hard to get into a leadership position, that those coercive behaviors were the antithesis of what he had taught us to get there. And I remember being so confused. And I'm I'm in my network marketing days again. But my point is, is that what she was disclosing in her book, the power tactics, the manipulative, coercive, gaslighting tactics were so infused in my leadership vortex years of network marketing i just stood there in awe like no wonder i went through all that because i had absorbed this growing up i remember fraudulent business conversations i remember my uncle giving money to my dad 20 grand or something and then never getting that back to buy some horses i don't know anything about horses but when that book came out and the story started flooding on facebook and people from back in the 70s and 80s started writing their stories and they had a piece of the puzzle that reminded me of something i had remembered and then somebody else had a piece of the puzzle i was blown away It was like a flipping Rubik's cube in my psyche, just right together. It was like it unhooked out of my head. Somebody had posted something about not uh, chanting the Adi mantra anymore, that it wasn't a link to the golden chain. It was a link to him, to YB the Predator. And that registered in my body so fast. I was like, yep. No more. I won't do that. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what you choose to do. That is just what I chose to do. And it's how I'll speak to it. Um, because I, I believe that is how he was hooking into my subtle body and still remains hooked into people's bodies. Um, All those years, the last eight years, that I had worked so hard to stop using my will unconsciously, over-cultivating my will, completely disembodied, living in the astral realm, cut off at my navel point, not feeling anything below my waist, really not feeling anything below my neck, because I had already blocked off my heart and all my energy was contained in my belly, and I was squeezing that energy so tight so that I could shoot out of my body into super consciousness, all of these things I figured out after the fact. Slow processes of coming back home to my body to feel what it's been doing and it wants. So all this was happening in March 2020. Then came the Zoom calls, the private calls with fellow second-genners and you started sharing your uh, your India stories and your Personal stories of attachment or non attachment or emotional barriers or scarcity of food or just whatever story you told, I felt. Kate Felt's story, I felt. I remember her. She was like a princess to me as a child. To find out that in 1985, she had been horribly and abusively raped. And that our own people didn't believe her and she was a young child from our community. You know, like, this started tearing me up. Like, fuck, this is what's been in my body. Your stories have been living in my body. Your pain has been living in my body. This is the terror I've been feeling. This is the horror that I've held, that I've processed, that I've untangled out of me. These things didn't happen to me, but they happened around me. Plenty of things happened to me, but plenty of things happened around us. It was like the ethos. And that's how it was lodged in my body. It was like sheaths. It was like so absorbent. It was like the way mantra absorbed, the way I thought Guru Ramdas infused my consciousness. Predatory behavior infused my consciousness just as much. And that was so confusing. But now in plain sight, it was starting to become clear and it made more sense. And there was air, it was like, wow. Oh, we're talking about this for the first time. And even that felt uncomfortable. And I was stunned at some of the videos of victim shaming and denying. And I thought they were like right out of 1984. And I I really couldn't believe that this was 2020 and we were seeing some of these propaganda videos. You know by Rama and and whatever Golden Bridge or Grimuk or whoever you know not you know just posts that were just such bypassing posts it's like are you at all in reality you know and so I just started really appreciating the the Facebook group that's you know now beyond the cage uh, group that started just creating an atmosphere of support and and conversation and speaking out loud about things and uncomfortable truths and uh, the zoom calls supported you know help so much but then what happened was you know when krishnakar wasn't um putting out a uh, a statement of course i'm gonna i'm gonna call her and i'm gonna say you need to put out a statement like what the heck is going on and um you know i've all the love and compassion for her and all the levels of trauma and recognition or non-recognition that she may ever come to but she's always listened to the children and she's always connected to the kids and so she at least came out with a statement like that and in in that process what happened was I had to feel into my body how angry I felt that I didn't feel like her statement was enough and how do I love someone and be so angry that they're not telling the truth that I feel needs to be told. And in that moment, I realized I get to be angry. I don't have to pretend like I'm not angry. I can be angry and I can speak my anger and I can say it out loud. And I don't have to direct it towards her or anyone. I can just use it as fuel to my fire to to tell the truth. And out of that came the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Because I was so angry that these stories are yet still being told in private places. In private groups where some people don't go on Facebook. In private Zooms where some people miss it. And I just for once wanted a public platform where these stories can be accessed and listened to whenever someone's ready. Not when we tell you to listen, just whenever you're ready. And that was the spirit of where this came from, because we all have a story to tell and our unique lens and our unique experience and our unique healing processes help us to support each other to learn from this fuckery how do we love and know that we were abused in the same exact space how do we reconcile it you know These memories live in our bodies. And from that birth of wanting these stories told publicly came a series of writings of what felt like um, uncovering parts of my little children along the years. And they were really young ages. That part of me that was really angry at Krishna was like eight and I wrote about being so angry at the hypocrisy of all the adults and what all of this has opened up in me is realizing just how confusing it is to be a child in an environment where all of the adults are vacated. They've given up their willpower to someone else so they're not in their body. And as children growing up around that, It's so confusing because what you're told to do and what you're seeing is happening and what you're hearing is happening is so incongruent. It teaches you to not trust yourself early, to not trust your own body, to perform for love, to be the perfect little yogi, the perfect little sikhi, the perfect little warrior saint that is going to say and do and speak and become and shine and be bright and be whatever I need to be to survive. And I didn't understand that my resilience and my strength was covering up my sweet vulnerability and my ability to feel joy and happiness, and lust, and love, and anger, and rage, and anything else in this full range of expression that I am. I didn't know that I had been trained to believe that the sensation of deprivation wasn't enlightenment it was just deprivation and emptiness and loneliness and that wasn't enlightenment my mind had been trained to believe that was enlightenment or that was holy or that was love but it wasn't It was just disconnection. It was just being touched without my consent by plenty of adults and other children that had no right to my body. It was just a bunch of adults giving up their power in the name of seeking consciousness. And while I'm so grateful for my parents to have chosen that, because I think it's far better than having grown up in mainstream middle America or Beverly Hills for Christ's sake. It's also very, very confusing and it's very traumatic. And one doesn't discount the other. They both can exist. And as much as I am grateful for so many aspects of the way I was raised and our lifestyle and our culture and the exposure to things that we didn't get otherwise, that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise, I don't speak to a lot of those things in present day time because I feel like we are in a stage where we need to speak to the predatory abuse that took place in our community. We've spoken about the good things for 50 years. We've spoken of and exalted amazing aspects of our lifestyle. And now it's time to talk about the not so amazing parts. And we don't do it by wish washing them together. We only do it by facing the dark head on and shining light on it and speaking to it and holding the pain and holding the discomfort and holding and feeling the resentment and the rage and the abuse and all the ways that you participated and I participated I was a yoga student I'm in the yoga teacher and I want to say it was as late as 2018 you know and I had a student come up to me not come up to me in person she called me It might have been even later, but it was definitely at least 2018, maybe 19. She came up to me and she's like, I just read these Kate Felt rape papers. And I don't know how you teach anything that this man has brought. And I'm like, huh? What are you talking about? I hadn't even looked at the rape case from 1985 as woke and reconciled and healed, and all the things I hadn't. And I didn't know what to say to her. I was like, no. She was like, no, it's right here in public record. <sighs> anyway, I can't say I have that many stories of that kind of thing happening. I feel like I was as aware as I could be at that time. Um, I did call her and apologize as soon as all this came out and just said, I'm sorry I didn't listen. I'm sure I asked her to email it to me at least, but I I, I didn't investigate, right? And it just made me realize that one of the things about being raised the way we were is in order to be prideful and strong and being so different, we had to get so trained to not look at the, at the, at the crack, you know, they're just trying to put cracks in our good thing right and that's so much a part of the indoctrination and a necessary one if you're going to have any sort of a backbone in being so different right and yet what that also does is it prevents critical thinking it prevents us from being able to like get a lens outside of our little bubble that we lived in thinking that this was the magic formula for humanity because you know all the way up till 2020 as much as i was processing and clearing shame and pain and abuse and terror out of my body and not knowing where this stuff, not knowing where this stuff came from. Of course, I thought it came from my childhood experiences, but a lot of it felt like more than me. It felt bigger, like big. So I kind of put it into the category of past lives because like, what are you supposed to do? Anyway, um, a lot of that time was trying to reconcile like my love for kundalini yoga. I knew there had to be something good. I didn't want to give it up, right? So I didn't think I had to, I was trying to find the best. And it was when all this broke open that I realized there's nothing for me to be reverent towards. There's not a body of work here. There is a masterful cult leader here that from the very beginning was stealing slices of real truth from real ancient sources, whether numerology or astrology or an ancient world religion or yogic technique or asana or mantra or sound current or Kabbalah or you name it, right? Vedic astrology or Ori uh, all of it, amalgamating it into one thing and forming a new identity around it with white clothing, our special name of Khalsa, and all these other things that made us special. And when I started looking at the cult and the high demand group checklists that academics have looked up, and studied and then studied the children that were born in high demand groups, it was like reading myself on paper. I saw, I was like, it's just a formula. It doesn't matter the ideology, it doesn't matter the practices, the belief systems, there's a formula, specialness, you have to, you have something to heal the, you know, something to change humanity. And I felt like that was such a powerful hook because if any of us ever leave and you go off into the world and then you hear a semblance of a a real truth whether it's Kabbalah or numerology or whatever, it brings you back to the nostalgia of, of our home upbringing, right? And thinking that there must be some real truth in it. And the popularity of kundalini yoga and all of that growth and seeing it kind of get more and more notoriety as well as scientific backing. And, you know, it's confusing, you know, something that you thought you had healed, and you started to like doubt and you wonder. And watching it all break open, just for me, it confirmed my path so clearly. It confirmed listening to my own soul pulse more than my indoctrination. And it also opened me up to realize how um, just how much what I had been healing and processing was complex PTSD, that I've always suffered from complex PTSD. And I just didn't ever have a therapy or a support model or system that helped me get that kind of support, that helped me to see myself or identify myself as that. And I think this is so important because you can't meditate or do yoga away from our mental health. I do have to say that I am definitely my own best authority and my own best therapist, but it doesn't discount my need for a therapist and for support and help too. And so I'm so grateful for my path that I have navigated and learned to listen to my call within more than anybody else out externally. Whether they're a healer, a chiropractor, a doctor, a numerologist, a guru. Um, But at the same time, being able to see and identify with the symptoms and the impact of of growing up with complex PTSD and and early childhood trauma helped me to have more self-compassion. It helped me to slow down and just quiet that that inner tyrant voice that voice that just doesn't end telling me that I'm worthless and nothing, you know? And so your stories changed me. Hearing your testimonies and your courage to come forward. Even all of you that thought you were so insignificant. You woke me up. To claiming my whole self and to fully, fully calling my spirit back to my body in full. And um, I'm still on this wild ride. But I'll say that it's given me a lot more compassion for myself. And it's why these podcasts help me so much. Because I learn as I listen to you. Um, I think that's the most of my story here, (laughs) at least in my 3HO story. I want to say that um, I'm so grateful for so many aspects of my growing up. And I'm even more grateful to speak truth into the darkest places of them. I'm grateful that I'm not keeping these secrets in myself anymore. I'm grateful that I can talk out loud to my family. I always talked out loud to my family, by the way. Even when my dad died, I got to talk to my brothers about all that. And they were always loving and supportive of me. But what I mean is that when you grow up in an ethos where, quote, Things that weren't so good are always put into um, an area of humor and um, kind of like, if it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger attitude. What we miss is an opportunity for real sharing from heart to heart in our families and with those that we love, because it means parts of ourselves that need to be shared and need to feel safe to share may not feel safe and I think that's what this is doing within our own families and our own communities is it's opening up space for us to have hard conversations and hold each other in hard places and love each other anyway and learn to set boundaries where we need them so yeah I'm I'm having this experience of of discovering what it feels like to be in my body and to express as me without feeling like I'm so bound by my conditioning and it's a very new experience I'm only playing here for the last uh, year or so and um, so much of that has been reclaiming ages of my children that were caught in the rubble of all of the tumultuous early years of my life that got masked over very quickly I want to end here in talking about how complex it is to unwind incestuous abuse. And I consider the 3HO community a one big family incestuous community. Our families are so interwoven and interwebbed. Doesn't matter if we're not blood related. We're all related. Siblings of destiny as we call it. Yes. And in the body of the cosmos, we're all connected. We've all heard this lingo and this language, and as true as that is in the light, it is. It is as true in the webs of darkness, deceit, despair, abuse, predation, pedophilia, inter interdimensional levels of those that abused one saved someone else and somebody who saved someone else abused somebody else. This stuff is hard to unravel because my helper was somebody else's abuser. And how do we talk about that complexity? So I just want to speak out loud to say this ain't easy stuff to unravel in our own bodies with each other, much less to speak about. So to feel about and to speak about is complicated and it's complex. And I just want to say I honor and hold you and wherever you are in that process. My upcoming book is called Predators in My Body. Healing Sexual Abuse and Reclaiming My Pleasure. And it is about those eight-year journey where my business ended to where I discovered I ended up in the pits of shame in my body, and I'm going to be sharing that decade. So that's coming. And then I am also want to share that I'm going to be launching a podcast called Me and Complex PTSD, My Personal Stories. Um, And I'm just going to go more into detail of my life stories. So feel free to um, get on my mailing list to connect with me if you want to hear about that. Um, Because I have so many more stories than I was able to get to in this podcast. I did the best I could here today to keep it 3-H-O related and not too long-winded. But I never do a very good job at that. So hopefully you enjoy this episode, folks. Um, Please feel free to check me out and learn more about my work. I do teach on how we unwind conditioning and trauma patterns from our body and reclaim our pleasure and our own soul pulse. So you can stay connected with me at GuruNishan.com. And I'm excited about my upcoming podcast because I got stories, folks. Um, so, yeah, if you want support to cultivate a relationship to your own sensory body and the messages your body communicates, please stay in my realm and get connected on my email list at gudunishan.com. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode today. I want to say I love you brothers that are listening. I love you mothers my Mata G and my mom I love my sister I love all of my family I love every one of you that take the time to listen to these podcasts to share them with your friends to do this hard work of healing parts of ourselves that we wish we could never had to talk about or deal with but I promise you it's better on the other side if you're willing to dig in So, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce my song. Um, My song is The Rose by Bette Midler. And um, there's lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is I realized on this journey and and, um, maybe by towards like the end of May 2020 that I got, um, as I got unhooked from the consciousness that I feel was uh, blinding my own seventh, gate my own chakra my own ability to see clearly through my consciousness as i got unhooked i got opened into a clear dimensional experience of my path and that path is included is called the the priestesses of the rose and um, my eight-year journey was very much symbolically interwoven with the venus metamorphosis journey of the venus cycle in the sky and i'm still learning about what all this means but it's ancient wisdom that has always been with me and i want to just honor the rose because i've always been protected by the rose my mom was named mary my other stepmom my dad's first wife was named mary my brother and sister's mom is mary the roses of the Sikh weddings that I loved that was my favorite part was throwing the roses mama rose who came so many years later and helped Faiswali come here and I could just go on and on all these stages of my journey that no matter how far away it felt I was I was always protected and loved so the rose has a lot of significance for me right now And I also find the words of this song so beautiful. And I'm just going to go ahead and play it. Now, for copywriting purposes, we don't play the whole thing. But please listen on the Spotify playlist, Uncomfortable Conversations playlist, so that you can hear the full episode. I'm going to go ahead and play the full one because they're going to mute it out anyways, and I want you to see the words. So... Here we go. That got me crying, huh? Woo! Yeah, I love you. And I love to love. And I've learned to love me. But it's taken a lot of years to break through the layers of self-condemnation Self-abuse, self-abandonment, self-projection, unconscious spiritual superiority that was encoded and embedded in my psyche and in my body. For anybody I've ever hurt or abused unconsciously, and I know there were plenty in my business years, I'm so sorry. And it was rooted in not being able to feel my own emotions. And when I didn't let myself feel my own emotions, I would project out and blow that anger and pain through other people with my fierce tongue. And I learned that well. I didn't learn that by myself. My dad was good at that. YB was good at that. The community we were raised in taught me that, taught me how to not feel my body, how to bypass myself, how to give myself away in the name of earning love and approval, and taught me that it was okay to blow my pain into other people, and that it wasn't safe to feel my own vulnerability. And today I know the truth. I know my own satnam. This word doesn't trigger me. There's not much from my upbringing that triggers me anymore, except for lies. Untruth telling, that triggers me, and I'm going to call you out on it. But in terms of the practices, I've spent so much time alchemizing the opposites in my body that I've come to realize that's all we're here for, is to get more and more comfortable being in our body and having our soul fully inhabit it. But in order to do that, we've got to clear out the pains and the lived memories that prevent our body from taking up space inside of ourselves. And that stuff lives in the body and the pelvis and the sex. And I'm so happy to have excavated and to feel more of me today than I've ever felt. And and to have less and less of my conditioning run me than my soul self. And that feels fucking hot, y'all. So that is my message for today. I'm going to go ahead and get off this podcast and just say thank you so much for listening to me today. And um, thank you for sharing these episodes with others that you know. And um, please keep listening. Subscribe. Please review the podcast on whatever platform you listen on so we can help increase the ratings and keep encouraging other people to listen to it. Your story makes a difference. Hearing each other's stories make a difference. I love you. I appreciate you. And this concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. The Untold Stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Community. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. To be a guest on the podcast, please send an email to gn at gurunishan.com. You can also subscribe, follow, and support my work of provocative truth-telling at gurunishan.com. Thanks again for tuning in, folks, and we'll talk to you again on the next episode.